Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Thursday, October 29th, 2020. We are five days out. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So, uh, as just out, as we are uh, recording this, the... Uh, GDP numbers for the previous quarter come in at 33.1% growth, uh, which <laughs> is an astonishing number. A number like this has never been seen before, but of course we never had an economic collapse like the economic collapse we saw in the wake of the pandemic. And thus, you know, the economy shrank like the economy has never shrunk before. So you are talking about growth off a re- vastly reduced base nonetheless it's obviously very good news it comes interestingly enough at a time when the stock market uh is in this may this may cushion it but has been in a little bit of a free fall this week dropping about nine percent as the coronavirus numbers uh got worse and worse here and worse and worse in europe so the obvious question is, will this have any impact on the presidential race? And the obvious answer, I think, Noah, is has to do with the fact that uh, where we stand right now, how many people have voted already in 2020? I think it's like almost 70 million. Is 75. I think it's close 70. to 75 million as of yesterday. Yeah, that's a lot. That's one like of, half the number of people who voted in 2016. Oh, uh, more than half. More than half, yeah. 137 million people voted in 2016. So we are, and and by the way, just so we, just by, by relevant comparison, in 2000, 102 million people voted altogether in the Bush v. Gore election. 100 million. So it's 20 years later. We are on track for 150 million, 160 million, assuming that there is big election day turnout and that the coronavirus really doesn't suppress election day turnout. Yeah. I mean, we had like 50 million fewer people in 2000. That's so right. Even up population growth. That's right. But um, yeah, so does this affect the election? No, because nothing affects the election. The election hasn't been affected for a year and a half. It's been the same election for a very long time. Uh, and also, the signature issue of the 2020 race, uh, contrary to whatever Twitter wants to talk about on a day-to-day basis, is the pandemic. It is the most salient issue in most American lives, to say nothing of the world. And everything seems to be going in the wrong direction right now, um, most notably in Europe, um, where they're in an absolute panic and, and locking down the country, um, with the notable exception of schools. So that's one thing that they have an advantage over us on. Um, but guess what they don't have? Guess, France, what they, guess what they don't terrifying. have? Guess what they don't have in Germany and France and these places? What don't they have? Teachers unions? Teachers unions. They do not have teachers unions. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Dear. Yeah. So, I mean, we all understand what the, the problem is there. But while we haven't experienced that kind of uh, lockdown 2.0 in this country yet, I feel like there's a, there's a, a sentiment abroad that expects it to come. And you're, that's a lot of what you're seeing in the stock market now where you're seeing airline stocks plummet and oil is going down again. Um, and everybody's really bracing for what looks to be a pretty bad second wave over the winter. So uh, if that is the signature issue of this election and it doesn't advantage the incumbent or any incumbent for that matter, um, then it's this GDP number. Well, welcome. And it beat expectations, which I didn't think it would because we kind of started slowing down in the last month um, of the third quarter, but it did. Nevertheless, I don't think it changes the trajectory of, uh, of this race. Does, does anyone, this is the other question, which is, does, does anyone believe that Donald Trump deserves credit for the economic growth? In other words, you have you have essentially a macroeconomic effect of the of the crash followed by the recovery, uh, with the exception of the uh, stimulus, which I guess he deserves credit for. I mean, I, I don't think he uh, he didn't design the payroll protection act, as far as I know. 
Um, but with the exception of the stimulus, like what's happened that you would actually assign the president credit for helping bring the economy back? Anyone? Well, I don't we're know. not New Zealand, right? We we didn't we didn't you know go the route of New Zealand. We, there was no um, crippling shutdown from from on high that that could have resulted in a much more calamitous uh, economic situation. And plus, I mean, I think only you know, sort of by virtue of the rules of the game here, you have to give him credit because if there was a, he if there's not a v-shaped recovery or if there's any way to imply that there's not a v-shaped recovery he gets slammed so why not oh, I, why not why not I, give him credit i'm actually i'm actually asking more about about sentiment in the country not really I, about in the, the actual, sort of general right. political yeah. discussion like will people right give him credit i mean in some sense i guess people do give him credit because the one area in which his polling is not sort of relatively disastrous, remains the economy, although it's not as strong as it was. But, you know, when you people are asked this variety of issues about who would be better to handle X, the only thing on which he is either in a, you know, he, he either bests Biden or is like tied with Biden is the economy. In that sense, this recovery is priced in for right. his approval, right? If nobody blames Donald Trump for the second order effects of the pandemic, then he doesn't get any blame for the economic collapse uh, in March, but he doesn't get any credit for its recovery now. Although, of course, Biden tried very hard in the debates to blame him for the uh, for the crash. Um, Well, which was such a weird choice because the policies I've been been spending a little bit of time this week looking and listening to what the Biden Harris campaign says they're going to do about the pandemic, especially given that, you know, as we said, we're going into another period where cases are increasing. There's not that much difference between what he proposes to do and what Trump, the Trump administration has been doing. There's a big difference in messaging. There's a lot more um, we trust the science as a sort of political comparison to the fact that they believe Trump doesn't. But they don't really I mean, they can only do so much. Right. We've talked about this many times on the podcast, um, with the exception of saying that they would convene local leaders to give some guidance, which I think is a good idea. And Trump should have done Um it, there's really not a huge distinction except in tone and except in communication style, which I guess at this point is enough for most Americans, if you trust the polls, uh, with regard to the coronavirus. They just don't trust that Trump is going to f- do the right thing. Um, and if that's what they're voting on, then it's pretty clear. But I, there's not a huge amount of policy difference between what a Biden administration will continue to do with regard to the virus and what Trump has already been doing, with re- except for messaging. Unless, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Have you guys seen any uniquely Biden-Harris initiative that they're proposing doing if if they win? Uh, they're going to bring together people and then they're going <laughs> kumbaya, to follow the, the science <laughs> and uh, they're going to get a handle on this thing. Yeah. And they're, you know, not going to whistle past the graveyard. They're going to they're going to take it seriously and that and and listen to the science mm-hmm. with yeah. their ears which is all on the and same their page, hearts right? <laughs> so that's what they're going to do and you know thank god someone's going to do that is bring people together to listen to the science okay so it is the kumbaya approach all right i mean but again like the, that again messaging wise that's a much better message than what trump was saying on the campaign trail yesterday which is that ah we're we're, we're rounding the corner yeah but we're rounding the okay, corner back we, towards numbers that we, are not good. okay can i want to uh, talk about this a little bit because i'm i'm trying to understand what the meta message is of trump's having grabbed onto this phrase that we're rounding the turn. First of all, you could round a turn and then still have, you know, 800 miles left to go of the trip, by the way. So rounding a turn is not, you know, we're reaching the finish line. It's a kind of weird phrase. Um, So implicit in it is that you're, you know, we're, we're, we're heading into another part of the road, not that we're, you know, on our way out of it. But let's say that that's what he's trying to convey. To whom is he trying to convey this method? This is what I, 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 I'm having difficulty understanding. I think maybe he is betting on the idea that there is a silent majority opinion 
that we're we want a president who is sick of the virus and sick of the hectoring, lecturing, and yelling about you know how we have to sort of stay locked down. Though we're not really locked down mostly, but how we need to stay locked down because of the virus. Like in New York, we're still locked down. You know, twenty five percent capacity of restaurants, movie theaters, theaters are not open uh, despite all this bizarre effort to deny it. Uh, the, you know, the business district of New York is a ghost town. I'm, I'm sitting in it right now and there's nobody here. There's no, there's, there are three people in our office building at commentary, three, three people, three in a 20 story building. So yes, it's a ghost town, but I, I, so New York is bad, but New York isn't whom he's trying to talk to. That that's, what's interesting. Like the people going, I've had enough. I've had enough. I've had enough. What, what's, is this an effort to create what, people who are around Steve Jobs called a reality distortion field that Jobs believed in the vaporware that he was creating so deeply that he could make other people see what he saw even when it didn't exist yet and that this reality distortion field was one of the was one of the ways in which Jobs you know led not only by fear but by inspiration is he trying to create a reality distortion field for the american people because that if I think maybe that's the answer, and I, I, it's, um, I mean, I don't know if it's stupid or not. Tuesday will, 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 will tell us, or a lot of Tuesday will tell us. But does anyone have any? I mean, what, what, what is the purpose of saying we're turning a corner and then, and then? But it does. I mean, it, even it was, even virus skeptics have to say that the caseloads and the death rates are are rising relative. To where they were a month ago, right? So it's less Steve Jobs and more Rupert Pumpkin. Like he's he's created a reality distortion Rupert field for himself. You got David S. Pumpkins and Rupert Pumpkin confused. Rupert Pumpkin. Did I say Rupert Pumpkin? Pumpkin. Yeah. Rupert Pumpkin. I really want to go with comedy. the David S. Pumpkins theme, though. Okay. Yeah, David S. Pumpkins. I don't, I don't understand if you don't know, reference. if you don't know David S. Pumpkins, go to YouTube and Google David S. Pumpkins. It was a skit, a Halloween Lightful. skit on Saturday Night Live with. Tom Hanks, okay, one I'll, of the best skits I'm, of all time. Anyway, I'm sure I love it. Go ahead. But um, yes, it's more it's more along the lines of somebody who's just kind of tragically trapped in their own self delusion, and while they're inviting you to come along for the ride, you just take pity on them. Abe, you have any thoughts on this? Being more more sympathetic, I think to to this idea in general, maybe. Well, I I. I I want to give Trump some credit here for attempting repeatedly to grasp towards something like stoicism about the actual situation. Um, uh, he doesn't achieve it, really. He, he ends up, you know, um, either diminishing it um, or or seeming delusional. But he... He is, I think, you know, unsuccessfully sort of searching for a way to say um, there is no miracle here uh, and this is hard and that listening to the science, not listening to the science, doing every recommended thing, whatever there is, we are not going to be um, delivered out of this by some sort of liberal... um, uh, uh, you know, sudden um, uh, sort of shift in 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 the government's approach. Um, therefore, we have to trudge forward. Um, but it, there's no way for him to say it without sounding either callous or deluded. And I think so. He's he's tried different ways. So the stoicism. I mean, stoicism uh, it, uh, come would is not natural to him. Right. So, I mean, he's uh, one would describe him maybe as the least stoical person who has ever lived. Right. Since uh, stoicism uh, as a as a philosophy is about embracing. I know embracing may not be the right word, but in 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 hearing the horror of existence and and finding dignity and greatness in in the trudging on in the acceptance of the reality and and with the reality nonetheless trying to find meaning and beauty and all of that that's what stoicism is that is not him right he's a sybarite basically of various kinds he's a he's a you know he's an epicurean not a stoic and <laughs> right. so therefore 
Um, I think your your idea, which is sort of one of the reasons that people fell in love with Fauci, is that Fauci is kind of a stoic, uh, and uh, in, in manner and in and in me. And now I don't think that he as the if Fauci were the president. I don't know if that would work exactly. Mm-hmm. And maybe stoicism. This is where maybe you could give him credit for the for the economy because if he were. Mr. Gloomy Gus, you know, we're facing an unprecedented horror and we need to live through our unprecedented blah, 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 blah. Maybe the economy wouldn't have come back uh, as quickly because people really would, you know, everybody would have just like frozen in place in horror and been in, you know, depression or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, that's the one thing you, you, you could say is that by not being a stoic, he, he did better. And then when he shifts into stoicism, when he says, like, it is what it is. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which became this thing, how dare he say it is what it is? But, of course, ultimately, it is what it is. That's right. And you can't, like, you can't uh, go and live in perpetual paralysis and mourning for the for the losses that have already been incurred you've got to you've got to help the kids get back to school you've got to get people back to work all of that all of that stuff but there there really is no way i agree with abe that he has sort of tried to tap into a kind of stoical message at times but it's like hearing that come out of the mouth of like gorgeous george not marcus aurelius <laughs> right not, you just don't believe it even if he really means it you, we're past the point of believing what he's saying and right. for fauci and fauci is kind of the flip side of that coin because i think he talks like a stoic but he acts like a pundit so that in some ways we are actually missing a true stoical voice. Right, that's right. The American people have been the Stoics here. Right. No, the great, the great Stoic. People always seem to use this analogy. The great Stoic of our of our age was Winston Churchill in the in the, in the wake of the bombings of London and and Dunkirk, which is this is terrible. What's happened to us is terrible, but. Dunkirk wasn't as terrible as it could have been and featured within it an act of unparalleled greatness. And all we can do now is we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight, you know, and we will never surrender. That was stoicism. I mean, that is that, you know, and that was, you know, although, you know, we didn't live there and I don't know how we would have, I mean, it, it was the genuinely great notion that you embrace the true nature of the reality that is facing you. And from within it, you try to find the meaning and the approach to, to go on. Right. So saying we're rounding the turn is about as far from stoicism as you can possibly stoicism would be to say, you know what? I, I, I am the president of the United States. Everybody needs to put on a mask. Now it's not, you can wear a mask. You cannot wear a mask. You know, everyone needs to wear a mask now. And you know what? Don't I? I really don't think people should be making plans to have you know large indoor gatherings for Thanksgiving. I mean, I, I'm just saying that would be stoicism. He is the opposite of that. He wants to be the voice for people who are like, eh, you know, you're all hysterics, all of you with the, your health concerns, and you're all crazy, right? But it's not crazy you know i mean it it just you know i wish i wish that the mitigation look part of the story in new york and we always talk about new york because we live you know three of us live here around here and then and then but i mean part of the story is that we think is that there is some certainly sign that mitigation helped either mitigation helped or this disease is going to go around kill everybody that it's going to kill there's nothing you can do about it until it until it goes away which is sort of what trump said in the early going it's just you know it's like it's a machine gun it's spraying bullets it'll hit some people no one there are no bulletproof vests and you'll either die or you won't die or you'll get or you'll get shot but you won't die from the from from the from the injury but New York was in a terrible condition and it locked down and people wore masks and didn't go out and didn't and all this. And, and it, and it was over, uh, you know, we, and what's more in this surge, we are not seeing a comparable return. Now, maybe 25 years from now, when they really study this data hard, it'll turn out that the mitigation efforts didn't really make that much of a difference. Maybe on the other hand, 
wearing a mask doesn't hurt. I mean, it hurts awful. I don't enjoy it, but I mean, it doesn't hurt. You know, it's like having, if you don't like chicken soup and you have a cold and you have chicken soup, maybe it'll make you feel better. You know, I don't know. Um, so we have five days to the election. 75 million people have voted. Uh, we have a we have a giant GDP number. We have a bad stock market number, although the market is still at 26,000, which is pretty staggering because it dropped to 18 sometime in March or April. And uh, 75, yeah, so 75 million voted. Uh, where, what do you think happens? Oh, so can we talk about a little liberal panic? Yeah, so yeah, can I actually yeah, please, I mean, I don't know where you're going with this, but go this ahead. is something I'm writing on today. So we've been talking about the rights need for there to be a secret Trump vote for a long time. Um, that it Trump support has to be ubiquitous, but also unseen. Sort of, it's an it's a, it's a faith very much, but it's not just the right that is that needs this to be the case. The left apparently also sort of needs there to be a fifth column of Trump voters that are pulling the strings behind the scenes and are going to pull off this magnificent upset, um, you know, in part because American politics has become uh, two competing persecution complexes, but also in part because they need to justify this liberal panic. And there was an article that justifies this or exemplifies this the other day, which drove me nuts from New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait. Um, who identified, and John, you, you brought this to my attention, which thank you for driving me absolutely crazy. You know, it's um, my job, no, It's my job. <laughs> so I've reacted very to viscerally to this. Yes. Because if you want to find Trump supporters whose arguments, um, you know, you can address, uh, you're not going to find a shortage of very vocal, very ardent Trump supporters. You know, that's the thing, a brief digression. You know, there's this New York Times op-ed the other day about Pennsylvania, and some guy was on the ground in Pennsylvania and talking about, you know, I mean, the polls in Pennsylvania show that Joe Biden's pretty well ahead, but look at all this anecdotal evidence. And then he's like, you know, there's a thousand yard signs over here and there's a bunch of people at the Trump store over here. And there's this bakery selling Biden and Trump cookies and Trump cookies are outselling Biden cookies 10 to one. So it's, it's not like there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Trump voters are particularly shy. Um, but then you have people like Jonathan Chait who, who don't argue against these very outspoken very, you know, uh, you know, not exactly self-conscious Trump supporters. They have to find people who are, who are couching their support for Donald Trump in, in, in veiled terms in order to identify and play detective and de- identify this, this um, uh, sub Rosa sentiment, which is going to carry the day. And so he chose Ben Shapiro, who's an outspoken uh, Trump voter, albeit a very, uh, very clear Trump critic on, on a lot of issues, but nevertheless, one who has de- determined that Trump is is better than the alternatives. And National Review's Charles Cook, who wrote a very um, compelling essay uh, about why he would maybe vote for Trump. National Review had this symposium where they had pro-Trump, anti-Trump, and Charlie's kind of right in the middle. And so he picks apart this essay as, and determines that you know Charlie Cook doesn't really not kind of vaguely support Donald Trump and isn't on the fence. He really supports Donald Trump. And in part because he really likes Trump's racial animus. Um, that, and that for him, that has to be the case. It's not like it's hard to find people who are easier targets there who exemplify this phenomenon in, in a more outspoken way. It has to be sub Rosa because that way he gets to play a, you know, uh, Clouseau. Yeah, he's he's you know seeing behind the curtain and in, in ways that you can't. And B, because it justifies this paranoia and this conspiracy theory um, mentality that he's he's particularly prone towards. But a lot on the left have become as well. They have to think in order to justify their mania. They have to think that they're all out there secretly hiding behind corners. Can I just say I think uh, you're 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 onto something, but you may have the 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 camera focus in a slightly. Uh, on a slightly different corner of things. What what Chait said in that piece is that because Charlie Cook doesn't focus on Trump's racism, and therefore because he doesn't say, I can't support Trump because of his racism, he is a supporter of Trump's racism implicitly. Because not to attack Trump on his racism is to support Trump on his racism. Uh, this is a This is an astounding... 
kind of a, a fallacy, um, I don't, you know, a logical and rhetorical fallacy. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not myself a logician or a rhetorician by training. So I once learned these terms and I can't remember what they are, yeah. you know, what is apodictic and what is not. So I'm not going to go into that, but, but it is a, it is a, if what, it is a ridiculous thing to say, you might say, yes, you know, Trump is a, is a racist. You could in theory say, yes, Trump is a racist. And it is a horrible, painful, monstrous fact that I have to support him over somebody else because the other person is worse than that. Now, in a world in which you can say that there is nothing worse than being a racist, then I suppose not opposing Trump simply on the basis of being a racist would be the sort of thing that you you, you would do. Uh, you know, let's say... Can I just interject to say, isn't yeah. what Chait is applying perfectly in the partisan space, the Ibram X. Kendi anti-racism principle, which is that you cannot be neutral about race. Right. You must actively call right. it out. Right. You can't, being silent is itself racist. So I think right. that's what struck right. exactly. me about No, argument. exactly, exactly. And I don't, that's I don't what recall, I mean, the whole point, but this is, this is what's so stupid about all this, is that the whole point of Charlie's column is that, this is a deeply flawed man uh, who does not who does not share my principles and is not a, a great president. And yet, and yet, I mean, that is the argument that he's making, and it's one that is if you if you haven't had that conversation with people in your life, you are really deep in the bubble, right? But, um, but it's hard not to have that conversation, especially after the events of this summer. But this is very very important going forward in understanding the social pressure of not being a liberal in America right now, which is the idea, the thing that is going on is the effort to claim that every view in the United States that does not conform to the liberal view is not only wrongheaded or misguided if you're a liberal, you know, if you, you know, wrongheaded, misguided, leading to the wrong way, but is actively evil. And so, uh, and this is a very important feature in the, in the, in the, uh, deplatforming of ideas and the, uh, and the, the, the way in which polite society is now being required to draw tiny little circles around people and say, if you step out of this set of prescribed views, not only are we not going to like you or we're not really going to socialize with you, we're actively going to try and destroy you. Call you a racist. You're Charlie Cook. There's a piece out by, by, by Jonathan Chait says you're a racist. Okay, Jonathan, Charlie Cook has a great job at National Review. He's fine. What happens when Charlie Cook needs to get another job? And you Google Charlie Cook's name. No, what? No, that's not even the issue. What happens if a mid-level manager at some right. company retweets Charlie Cook's piece? Very that's good. Right. Exactly. The that's right. Who's going to lose their that, job? Exactly. So the the idea here is that the uh, that views and associated views are now not only deemed wrong or bad. You argue against them, and you're you know you don't want to like have much truck with somebody who has these views, but that you are trying to bring the mob to their door. You are trying to bring not only the mob, but this organized mob effort to bring institutions to control the way institutions larger and to act toward individuals in, in this fashion. And that's one of the reasons that this feels totalitarian. I mean, that is right. This is the subject of Abe's. Uh, yes, this is a revolution piece from from two months ago. Right, Abe? I mean, this is. Yeah, and also, you know, so and during uh, revolutionary movements, definitions change um, a lot because they have a lot, you have a lot of power, and if you can call something, um, you know, if you can sort of change the meaning of a label, that goes a long way. So, aren't we at a point anyway where to identify someone as a conservative at all is to cast suspicion on their character? Is to is to is to is to say that they are they are already at least um, sort of dealing in a, a racist milieu. They're already 
sort of socializing among racists and, you know, playing, toying with racist ideas in, in a way that good people wouldn't do? Well, among a certain circle, that has been the case well before Trump. But I just the, don't know how much purchase that circle has. The space, but it's interesting because I have long called myself, when people ask my political affiliation, I say I'm a conservative, which is not a Republican. It's not a Democrat. It's not a libertarian. It's conservative. What I've found, and I've been doing that for a very long time, in since Trump, people are don't even understand what that means. Right. So I think you're right, Abe, but I'm coming at it from the direction, because what they say is, well, Trump's a fascist. The Republicans are aiding a fascist. Anyone even fascist adjacent is a fascist. So you're all fascists. Well, that's it's, new. But the racism stuff isn't new. It's so not. Racism, remember, if you, I, if you, I, in I, 2012, I, if you used words like Chicago and apartment and constitution and food stamps, you were by definition a racist because MSNBC said you were a racist. It is not new. It is not new. It's decades old. Uh, but, you know, it was the precinct of the nation. It was the precinct of, you know, there were, I, I can name all sorts of writers, uh, Earl right. Shoris and Corey Robin and people like that. And and this uh, political social science that claims that essentially be, that um, the conservative views on sort of law and order and and uh, and sort of social institutions and all of that are are implicitly authoritarian, which of course means take go a couple of clicks further, and then you get to fascist. But that that was a view that was a view that did not dominate uh, the center to liberal. There was this idea that you know there was a gradation of people with whom you disagreed on the other side. There were there was a gradation. Not only on the left, but the the right thought this of the left too. There are gradations. There are people who are better and worse, right? Even if you disagree with them, and and part of what's going on here is the notion that there is no better. It is all worse. Everything is worse. If you believe one little thing over here, and you know, I would say this sort of begins uh, not even in race, uh, interestingly enough, but in guns, in you know, abortion. I mean that. That on uh, that uh, this notion to say that anybody who says that the Second Amendment provides individuals with a right to bear arms um, is implicitly support is an implicit uh, uh, shares blame for school shootings, and there are tens of millions of people who believe this, and there and this is a view that began became a sort of common media theme, though. 36% of American households have a gun in them. I mean, think about that number. It's like 40 some odd, you know, 40 some odd percent of the United States is going voters are going to vote for Trump in this election. And there is a significant body of opinion in the United States that is now controlling as Christine indicates controlling the discourse in social media. And we should get to the Amy Comey Barrett thing and the Girl Scouts in a minute, controlling the discourse that believes that it is not that, you know, 25% of them are deplorables, but that they are all by definition deplorable if they vote for Donald Trump. That's that's going to be 65, 66 million people in the United States who are viewed as being beyond the pale by 70 million or 75 million people in the United States. But I'm sure some really believe that. And I'm sure many of those people really believe that. But I think there's probably a substantial portion of them that just really finds that construct to be a useful device to be able to ignore what is animating Trump supporters and just chalk it up to this subhuman hatred that you don't actually have to comprehend. I don't agree because I think that it gives your feelings um, a moral heft to say, right, okay, there is a set of ideas that has animated this this political movement or this party that I don't agree with and I don't believe in. And the ideas themselves are noxious and rotten at the core. And to be able to be tempted by them or, or um, seduced by them is to be a person of low and bad character. And a person of low and bad character does not need to be respected or understood or anything like that. A person like that is to be quarantined, is to be cordoned off from polite society. And we should talk about that for a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, 
the Bradley Speaker series, because as I've been telling you, and as you know, we're navigating through several unanticipated crises. We the people, the Bradley Speaker series offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode, which features commentary contributor Andy McCarthy speaking on the breakdown and respect for the rule of law and related social issues. Uh, Andy, who wrote the really remarkable article, The Progressive Prosecutor Project, for us earlier this year, a a must-read if you want to understand where the left is going in the United States right now, uh, is, of course, a senior fellow at National Review Institute, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecutor of the Blind Shake. In this episode, he addresses the characterization of Antifa, the dangers of court packing, and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And he also provides perspective on the latest developments in the Russia investigation. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly. So come back often and subscribe to our YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. And as ever, we thank the Bradley Foundation for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, Christine, can you talk to us about uh, Amy Coney Barrett and the Girl Scouts? (laughs) Yes. Um, So late last night, the Girl Scouts of America tweeted a a nice message saying congratulations to Amy Coney Barrett uh, for being the fifth woman appointed to the Supreme Court since its inception. And it was it included all the images of the previous female justices. Um, And, uh, you know, it was a nice girl powerish, very Girl Scoutish style tweet. Um, they were immediate, and it's something, by the way, that they've done before. Every time a female uh, justice, the previous female justice appointed, they did the same thing uh, for Kagan. So th- this is, you know, this is not new for the Girl Scouts. What was new was the uh, blue check uh, Twitter mob attacking that tweet. And so very quickly, the Girl Scouts of America retracted the tweet with, I do actually want to read what they wrote because it's a lot of weasel words. They said, earlier today, we shared a post highlighting the five women who've been appointed to the Supreme Court. It was quickly viewed as a political and partisan statement, which was not our intent, and we've removed the post. So what that was, was a concession that because the, the Twitter mob came after them, the left left Twitter mob um, saying, Amy Coney Barrett doesn't support girls and women, how dare you, you know, congratulate her. Uh, they caved immediately. And what struck me was that we can't. So what really concerns me isn't that the Girl Scouts did this, but that a civic minded, nonpartisan organization that that is far, far removed from politics. Nobody's like courting the Girl Scout vote because girls can't vote. They're not old enough. They sell cookies and we all we all overeat the Girl Scout cookies. And I know there have been little skirmishes here and there about how they name their cookies. And in the PC world, they've had to shift the name of some of their cookies. That's you know, that's a little sideshow. This is not because what this shows is that even organizations that have no interest in politics are forced to be politicized by the by the mob coming after them for a completely legitimate statement. Why shouldn't girls celebrate that another woman is on the Supreme Court? I mean, that was all they were saying is like, yay, women. But because the woman doesn't comport with liberal values, it cannot be allowed. And I think it goes to your earlier point, John, like things that things that used to be tolerated because, oh, well, she's not my politics, but it's great to have more female role models on the Supreme Court. No, you can't even say that. She's not considered a woman by those standards, right? Because she doesn't... Literally, in the 1980s, when uh, the head of the National Organization for Women was talking about how the Republican Party disrespects women and doesn't like women and all of this... And somebody said, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Patricia Ireland, but it may have been somebody else said, what about Jean Kirkpatrick? And she said, I don't consider her a woman. Now think about that for a minute, because it is the ultimate totalitarian mindset. It is, it is the literal dehumanization of somebody who has views with which you do not agree. That being a woman means... Is 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 not a is not a description of somebody who has two X chromosomes, which, as we know now, you're not even allowed to assume that a woman has two X chromosomes, but is some kind of a um, something to be given or taken away based on your behavior. It, it is a uh, it is a it is a is an assignation or a, or a definition that requires fealty to certain. Uh, 
sets of ideas or, or, or practices. And um, uh, that idea has now, is, as I say, if you now, when it was said, it was like, once again, one of those things, it was the Kinsley gaffe where someone spoke the truth and made a mistake doing so. This is now the operating doctrine. Well, and that's, you know, I think, that's important. One, one quick point to that. A lot of us who followed the mainstream women's organizations back in the day, especially as they, they did actually radicalize throughout the 90s and early aughts. Um, and that was one of the things that a lot of us often pointed to is like this kind of litmus test based on your sex um, is going to be harmful if it's carried to its logical conclusion. So now we're at the logical conclusion. Right. But we do have enough evidence to suggest now that if you're inclined to ignore these barking lunatics who just yell at you on Twitter because they're just maniacs and are being performative, they're performing for an audience, the consequences are minimal. You're There's right. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the 72-hour period goes away. So the, the, the burden here is on the Girl Scouts for caving to an illusion. Exactly. But this is where uh, uh, Christine's point, I think, has has heft, which is these are organizations that are not prepared, are not, do not play in the sandbox of, of, of American online ideology. And they are totally unprepared for an onslaught of 500 tweets, all, or a thousand tweets, all the result of a party line, you know, so literally, you know, like a classic old time party line, not the, I don't, I don't mean, you know, communist party line, but, you know, a, a group phone line, everybody's saying the same thing at once. And they go, oh my God, like all we were trying to do was something cute and nice. I guess this is backfired on us. Let's, let's, let's go backwards. As opposed to saying there are 10 million people who thought it was perfectly nice that you did it. But your in, your initial instinct, and I look when I was on Twitter, I had this experience where you would say something, and then people would misunderstand it and take offense. And the first thing I would think was, "Oh man, I why did I even do that in the first place?" Like it took me ten seconds to think of the tweet. I tweeted it, I left it there, and then the, this there is this competing impulse, one of which is like, "Well, screw you, I can say it, I'll leave it up there." And the other is, "Do I really need this source? I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just delete it and get rid of it." Or I'll apologize for it because I don't want to spend three days in the middle of a controversy. The last thing I, as the, the communications director of the Girl Scouts, need is some kind of goddamn controversy and articles in the New York Times about how I caused a controversy with my tweet. So I'll just I'll just apologize and get rid of it. But in the apology, the apology is the sign of power. The fact that they said we didn't mean anything by it. We didn't mean anything by saying, boy, it's great that there's another woman on the Supreme Court. We didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. We're so sorry. Please order a Thin Mint or, you know, have a, have a, what are those uh, peanut butter cookies? Like, you can never them. have just a single Thin Mint, John. Stick right. together, okay. go for the whole so sleep. What, what are the peanut butter cookies again with the weird Dosey names? Notes. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, please, so, please, by yeah, tagalogs, right? So here's what's so disturbing to me about this. So getting the apology and the tweet deleted is the political victory here, right? Now, so didn't it used to be the case that the an ideological victory or a political victory, we've just something we've talked about a bit in the past, occurred when you got the wrong people to do the right thing. So let's say you were all about promoting um, w- women professionally. And then the people, let's just be very sort of coarse about it, conservatives who you, uh, who you wouldn't expect to do that would, would elevate a woman. That would be the sort of ideological victory, right? But now the victory is no, is, is, is making sure that the wrong people continue to be understood as the wrong people. Conservatives are bad. That's the, th- that's the thing that must remain the case. And the point is that it, this, this, this cause will be marshaled. Uh, it is more effective to marshal it. Like if you, you know, go at us, for example, we're, we're armed to the teeth. We can come right back at you. We know your idiot tweets. We know what your morons on your side are doing to embarrass. And we can throw it right back in your face. The Girl Scouts make cookies and they send nine-year-olds to knock on doors to sell their cookies. That's what they do. 
and they have jamborees, and I don't know what uh, whatever else they do. Like th- this is they not their right training, and That's right. you know. But they're not going to do this again. You know, if Nikki Haley is elected president in 2024, the Girl Scouts are not going to congratulate her on winning because she was a Girl Scout once. That will not happen because they they got burned and they know better. And every organization that's like the Girl Scouts will learn from their example that it is okay to put up a mournful post about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she was a liberal icon. And it is not okay to put up a post about anybody who isn't. Um, should we move on and talk a little about the revelation that uh, the the author of the high-ranking official in the Trump administration who had to be anonymous so he could speak his mind on the op-ed page of the New York Times to tell us that there was a resistance inside Missouri that was working hard to promote and find proper good ideas, um, was a shrimp assistant to somebody who then afterwards became chief of staff at a at, at the Department of Homeland Security, and whom, from what we can tell, was not exactly fulfilling the you know responsible governmental mandate that he said that he was fulfilling because he was actually uh, a person involved in the implementation of a highly a policy that I think even. A lot of conservatives view, view is highly problematic uh, in at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that this guy, you know, Miles Standish or you know John Taylor or whoever the hell he is, uh, is is anonymous, and that the New York Times played a role in creating this image that it, that that this guy was somebody of any uh, moment or meaning in 2018. Yeah. Well, that is the controversy here, right? That the times (laughs) created the impression deliberately that he was a much more influential uh, figure within the department of Homeland Security. Was, did they even identify him as Homeland Security? No, no. No. I remember we were sitting around talking about whom we we might know. Cabinet office. Yeah. Right. No, but I mean, but I mean, you know, we know five or six or seven people uh, in the administration who are writers and it was a pretty well-written piece who are sort of thoughtful, who, you know, are people that we know who sort of went into the administration kind of anti-Trump, but wanting to do good. And, and we, I mean, we sat around our office for hours thinking, was it, uh, was it this guy with the initials DF? Was it this, uh, was it this person with the initials TH? Was it that one? Was it this one? You know, could be any of them. But by the way, and it turns out, yeah. yeah, But I, you know, I always thought that it, it was whoever I thought it was in part because I always knew that the idea that this was going to be a headline name was nonsense. I mean, right? I, none of our names right. were headlines. Right. By the way, they were more senior than this guy, right. <laughs> who was like an assistant to the assistant of the assistants. He was like but, he was like Kristen Nielsen's bag carrier, <laughs> basically. And they're but they're not. He wasn't. I mean, even, he wasn't in a confirmable look. post. He was a he was a nothing nobody who wrote for Michael McCall, who was a congressman of not much note. Uh, you know, in the GOP, in the, I mean, look, I, for all, he, 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 he's perfectly fine. What do I know? But there's, and that's why the, the Times behavior here is particularly weird because they're an active participant in what has otherwise been a pretty subconscious um, personality defect on the part of, of Democrats and who fancy themselves the resistance is that they need to have Republican defectors on their side. That's why um, uh, Michael Cohen was so, able to transition from being a Trump defender to a a Trump ally to a a vicious Trump opponent. The second he needed legal help and financial support from uh, anti-Trumpers and who got and got a lot of it. It's the Lincoln Projects model. Republican voters against Trump model is that they have to be, you know, this there has to be this uh, uprising from within the right um, that has really satisfied a particular feature of resistance leftism and but that's that hasn't been an active process they've been passive supporters of what has otherwise been a a bunch of people willing to take advantage of a market opportunity here but the times just created this illusion to to advance that particular impulse and you know to satisfy that instinct on the left but that's their active participation in that is really dishonest and frankly 
unprofessional and I'm not even sure whether it, it would, a competent editor would have allowed that to happen in an earlier time. Well, good. They can and just, everybody plays games. No, they can just blame right James now. Bennett because they got rid of James. Bennett. It was James Bennett's fault, and he's not here anymore. <laughs> it's fantastic. Like, it's it, like you know, blaming Ted Bundy for you know unsolved murders in the Pacific Northwest. You know, you know, when Ted Bundy, the serial killer, was suddenly two hundred sheriffs were like, "Oh, he must have killed the woman that we could never solve the crime." Because I'm telling you, they're going to blame James Bennett and maybe Barry. Who knows? They'll blame Barry mm-hmm. and James Bennett. Something like I mean, that. Playing games on the news side with you know un, un, unsourced, unnamed quotes by senior officials, you know that's that's something that you're pretty used to. That you know you can uh, you can expect that a senior administration official isn't that senior. It may not even be an administration official, um, but to to do that to a, to give that kind of anonymity on the op ed side really changes the rules of engagement. Josh Barrow. Uh... Uh, who writes for Business Insider actually had an interesting idea, which is there should be some kind of a mainstream media compact on what level of position in the federal government it is proper and appropriate to assign the title high ranking or senior. Because Miles Taylor wasn't senior you know who's senior assistant secretaries are senior deputy secretaries are senior bag carrier to john kelly's friend who somehow ends up as department of homeland security chief because he has to go over to the white house and become and become uh and become chief of staff there uh that is not a senior person and am i being dismissive and condescending yes and you know why because his book stank I spent an hour reading his book and I couldn't believe my eyes and he got a million dollars for it and that's a Shonda. I congratulate his agents on a brilliantly played career. That is who deserves all the credit here is his agents who figured this all out and made it happen. Um, and you know who else should deserves an apology aside from the American people? Uh, Victoria Coates, a, an official at the National Security Council uh, who spent two years being tormented because everybody in the White House thought that she was anonymous. And she wasn't anonymous. And she's a, she's a good person. And she you know, is an art historian. And she's a serious person. And uh, real clear politics is uh, Paul Sperry did an investigation proving that it was her. And last night she tweeted out asking for an apology from Real Clear Politics, and we'll see if she she gets one. But I'm, you know, she was basically put in this intenable and intolerable position of having people view her with suspicion for two years so that this game could be played by Miles Taylor. So I hope he enjoys himself and, and he takes his money and he rolls around in it, you know, chokes on it. Anyway, I guess that's it from us. Uh, we were like we were really short yesterday we're not as short today sorry we'll try to be short tomorrow for Abe Christina Noam John Podhoritz keep the candle burning